I'm Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations. October 1st marks the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China, the name given to the country by Chinese Communist Party Chairman Mao Zedong in 1949. To understate the reality, a lot has happened in China over the last 70 years. Fact is, a lot has happened in China over the last 70 days, much of it unexpected, confusing, and ongoing, politically and economically. Politically, of course, pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong capture global attention and concern. But so too does China's economic situation. In particular, it's continuing, sometimes escalating battle with the U.S. over tariffs, intellectual property, market access, currency valuation, and more, all fitting somewhat neatly under the great power competition with the United States. For business and public policy leaders, the question remains, how did we get here? And where do China and Chinese-U.S. relations go next? To consider these questions, I talked with Isaac Stone Fish, a senior fellow at the Asia Society's Center on U.S.-China Relations, as well as a visiting fellow at the German Marshall Fund, Washington Post Global Opinions Contributing Columnist, and more. Stone Fish has studied China from the inside, having spent seven years living there. Today, he continues to analyze China's place in the world as a Truman National Security Project fellow, a non-resident senior fellow at the University of Nottingham's China Policy Institute, and an alum of the World Economic Forum Global Shapers Program. Before my conversation with Isaac, though, I have an ask from me to you. I hope you like these Working Capital Conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. That's it. Here's my conversation with Isaac Stonefish. Isaac, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. So uh, an incredible amount to talk about uh, regarding China. Um, and I'd love to start way in the future and wondering about what the history books will say about this extraordinary period um, of China in the world, and in particular, China-U.S. relations. So if, if I could ask you just briefly kind of as an overview, maybe go back a little bit. How in the heck did we get here? And looking ahead, if you, you, know, if you want to frame it that way, um, what's history going to say about this period? That's such an important question. I think we got to where we are today after several accommodations in the U.S.-China relationship that brought us to this really uncertain, really hazy period of the present. So in the 70s and 80s, U.S. strategy towards China was how do we work with China to counter and balance against our enemies, the Soviet Union? And then 89, 90, 91, Soviet Union collapses, uh, Beijing massacres unarmed protesters in Tiananmen Square, yeah. and there's this sense that China's not the ally that the U.S. once thought. So the policy shifts and the idea is that, okay, we're going to trade with China because by doing that, we're going to bring democracy to China. And that was really U.S. policy up until around 9-11 when everything global got subsumed under the idea of how do we work with countries to fight terrorism. So mm. 2001 to 2005, that was basically the U.S. relationship with China. And then there started to be this realization that the relationship was a lot more broad and that besides fighting terrorism, 
uh, China was not going to democratize, so we needed to fit them into a different framework. And the idea then in this portentous speech by the deputy secretary of state at the time, Bob Zelik, was how do we make China into a responsible stakeholder of the international system that the U.S. built? And that basically directed U.S. policy until roughly 2016 with the Obama administration trying to figure out, okay, if China is not going to play with us by our rules, then what? And it'd be fascinating to see how that would have evolved under Hillary Clinton. But instead, we had the chaos agent Donald Trump come in and throw a lot of what happened in the past out the window so that we're sitting here in September 2019 and really hard to know where U.S. policy is. So it's so to answer your other. Yes. Oh, yeah, sorry, please go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go, go ahead. And then I'll, I'll come back to um, what's striking me about uh, what you're saying right now or, or yeah. actually particularly about what you're not saying right now. But but go ahead. Yeah. Tell me about, uh, the, the you know, how the future is going to look back on this. So with the huge caveat that the honest answer is I have absolutely no idea how the future is going to look. I, I think the biggest question here is what happens to the Communist Party? So it's certainly possible that 5, 10, 20, 50 years into the future, the party still rules China and we still have a similar authoritarian, brutal system at the top of Beijing, which still allows for a surprising amount of freedom and flourishing at the margins. Or it's possible that we have something entirely different. So Chinese leaders love to talk about China's 5,000 years of history, and it's important to remember that the Communist Party has only ruled China for 69 of those years. And so what strikes me of all the things that you mentioned, you mentioned kind of the, the Nixon detente and how things changed out of, you know, coming out of the 70s and trying to integrate uh, China as a counterbalance to Russia. You talked about, uh, you know, what happened then through the 80s and, and into the 90s and then up and how there was a shift, you know, with the human rights, let's call it, out of uh, Tiananmen Square. And then in the early 2000s, how terrorism was at the center of our um, foreign policy, international affairs plate, and then kind of going through the zone. What you didn't mention in in the whole thing is economics. Mm. And so why is economics and the, you know, WTO, the World Trade Organization, and the the rules and around access to China's markets versus um, the rules that China has been able to play by, why has that become, I believe, the defining, almost singular aspect of what's driving U.S.-China relations, or am I wrong? Is that what's getting the headlines, but there's a whole heck of a lot more underneath it that's driving U.S.-China relationship right now? I think that's a great question, Chris. So I, I came up in this studying from China, and a lesson I learned really early on was that in Beijing, politics always trumps economics. And I think in this case and in the relationship between the two countries, while the U.S. business community did really push hard for further opening in the 90s and the 80s, in the 2000s, what, why we're seeing what we're seeing today is because of anxiety among American policymakers, uh, American elected officials, and individual Americans about are we ready, willing, and able to live in a world where China is the most powerful country 
And if not, are we ready, willing, and able to make the sacrifices and do what we need to do to deal with that? So I, I think the trade war, and I, I don't love the term trade war, but it's the best description of, of the moment we find ourselves in. I think the trade war is, is nominally about business and it's about American business frustration with Chinese economic policies and it's about Trump's frustration uh, somewhat bizarrely with the trade deficit, but it's really about American anxiety. And American anxiety about China's place in the world, about China's place regionally, about U.S. influence? Is it, do you see it more as a geopolitical struggle then as opposed to a geoeconomic struggle? I see it more as a geopolitical struggle. Now, geopolitical and geoeconomic are really tightly yeah. tied together. I, I think one of the things that I would fault the Trump administration in doing as they're trying to sell this policy is that the problem is not with China or the Chinese people or China becoming a, a more powerful country than America. The problem is with the Communist Party mm -hmm. and a Communist Party ruled China doing those things. And I think it's very important for everyone who talks about this to make it very clear that the problem is not with Chinese people and Chinese things and Chinese ideas. The problem is that the Communist Party, which is a deeply problematic regime. And that's, you know, <laughs> that's a yeah. long, long story there. But the problem is the party is ruling China today. And that's the problem that we need to solve. And, and in fact, you, you're just saying that about the deep problems. And I, I think I've got this right. Wasn't it just uh, yesterday or, or the day before? And we're recording this kind of um, you know, earlyish uh, September that it was just uh, Mao Zedong's the anniversary of his death, and there was something I read about the uh, um, the New York Times obit on that, and and about the number of killings, about the you know how that that takeover occurred, and and so yes, there is while there is five thousand years of history or so, as you point out, um, it's only what did you say sixty nine of of uh, communist rule was that the number you gave me earlier exactly. We are three weeks away from the big party in Tiananmen Square, the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China, where Mao Zedong famously stood up and said uh, to a huge crowd of cheering Chinese that the Chinese people have finally stood up. Hmm. And that leads me to the, the Chinese Communist Party versus Xi himself. And to what extent then, given the thesis that you're putting forward and, and a lot of emphasis in, in your analysis, I would say, on the function of the party itself, to what extent do you see Chinese assertiveness today, if you would characterize it as assertiveness, because of Xi personally versus the nature of the Chinese Communist Party as the ruling party? Would, would China be acting the way it is today regardless of uh, who was leading it? You know, it's such an important question, and we really don't have any way to have a good counterfactual to that. In the 2010s or thereabouts, there was the possibility of a coup with two top Chinese leaders. We, we still know very few details about it, and it's hard to know that if they were running the country, if it would be more... 
gentle, both to its own people and to citizens abroad. It's just, it's an impossible question to answer. But Xi Jinping, China's chairman today, is very much a creation of the Communist Party. He's from the red aristocracy. His father was a leading party official. He grew up in the compounds in Beijing. And while we might have seen a softer touch if his rival at the time, Premier Li Keqiang, was on top, it, it really feels that the way things could have been radically different were in the lead up to the June 1989 massacre when mm. the party leader Zhao Ziyang was basically taken and, and put under house arrest for sympathizing with the students. Yes. And he represented a more sympathetic uh, kind of a, a kinder, a gentler version of the Communist Party that has since been mostly suppressed. Fascinating. So you think that the in the last, call it 69, almost 70 years, that the optionality around a turning point was June of 89, and you know, subsequent to then, maybe it's Xi, maybe it's a, you know, today, maybe it was um, you know, somebody else who would have come up through, um, although your description of Xi makes him sound almost like a walking manifestation of the Chinese Communist Party, if, if such a thing were possible. But, but really, the, 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 the opportunity for the turning point, um, you know, if you want to bring it down to just one frame of one picture, um, was the, the person in front of the tank, um, you know, and whatever that was, I think June 4th, uh, 1989. And the lovely thing about that is that the tanks did stop yeah. and that, you know, it was sort of a, a pause in history, so to speak. I think two responses to that. It's easy for me to say with the benefit of 30 years of hindsight that 89 was the turning point. It could be that today is the turning point and that there you know, is a liberal who ends up taking power, who ends up not taking power and that the seeds are being sown as we speak and we just don't know about it. Um, or it could be that, you know, 89 does linger on as the moment when the hopes of Chinese liberals were crushed. I would also say that she is certainly a more complex, rich figure mm. than I make him out to be. And, and one of the problems with Chinese propaganda and the opacity of the Chinese party system is that we are allowed to see so little of Xi Jinping's actual personality and mm. his fears and his foibles, the things that make him a human. And we just get to see this very sanitized image of a somewhat charismatic, somewhat wooden party apparatchik, as opposed to a living, breathing person who could be the embodiment of China's dreams. So I've got some further economics questions for you and, and questions about the tariffs and questions about the business community, but but kind of one more current affairs, current events, and, and that's what's going on in Hong Kong. Mm. How, how, do you, how do you frame what's going on in Hong Kong and the Chinese Communist Party response and, and the tensions that we're all seeing? I think the biggest worry among Beijing with Hong Kong is that democracy could be a virus that spreads to other part of China. Mm. And I think the, the real issue with Hong Kong being allowed to elect its own leaders, which is what a lot of people in Hong Kong want, is that that desire could transmit to other regions of China and create real challenges to the Communist Party. Because when you think about it, on the face of it, it's not a crazy idea. There are plenty of regions around the world that are these sort of separate regions that are still allowed to elect their own leaders. You know, Puerto Rico and Hawaii are easy ones to think about. Mm. But I think the fear is that 
Hong Kong will do that. And possibly they'll elect a leader who wants to declare independence from China. But I think more importantly, more likely is that they do that. And you get a group of students in Beijing or Shanghai who start to wonder why they can't do that. And I think, you know, one of the interesting things about recording this podcast in early September is that a lot of people that I spoke with in Beijing and Shanghai expect this to be cleared up so that it doesn't embarrass the 70th anniversary of the of the party. Uh, sorry, the 70th anniversary of the founding of China, uh, the founding of People's Republic of China. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think this is one of those issues that we have this fascinating snapshot in time of the protests that we've seen rocking this major financial city over the last several months. And it's certainly possible in a few weeks. Those are just memories. Very, very interesting. Okay, well, so we'll keep an eye out for that uh, pending anniversary. And um, yes, a financial city, Hong Kong. And, and so let's talk uh, about the financial components. And, um, you know, the, the you you tried not to call it a trade war, so a, <laughs> a tariff imp- a tariff back and forth, whatever it is that's, that's going on. Um, from, first, I guess, from the U.S. side. Do you, would you agree that the U.S. government this is kind of a common, you know, thing that folks say that the U.S. government has the right diagnosis uh, to the problem, um, but does it have the right prescription? I think the issue is that a lot of what the U.S. accuses Beijing of doing wouldn't be that important if Beijing were, say, Vietnam or Saudi Arabia or United Arab Emirates. And so the stealing of American technology, the trade imbalance, the fact that um, Beijing prefers local Chinese companies to foreign companies matters really because of the scale Mm -hmm. and not because of the occurrences. So I would say that it certainly doesn't have the right solutions. And again, easy to say now, We'll, we'll see what hindsight tells us. But I think the, in terms of its diagnosis, I, I do think there's certainly an over-reliance from Trump on this idea of a trade deficit and on this fantasy that if Chinese manufacturers are hurt, then manufacturing jobs will suddenly spring up again like mushrooms after a warm rain. Mm. It, I mean, that era is done. And it's it's just sad and cruel, I think, for Trump and American politicians to pretend that manufacturing jobs will come back and mass to the United States. And how about U.S. business leaders? Um, how should how should they consider China as a market or perhaps even as a supply chain partner? What, what are you hearing from U.S. business leaders, and, and what do you say to them when when you talk with them? So I, I think the, you know, the the funny thing about where we are today is that there is increased political costs on both the American side and on the Chinese side for American companies doing business in China. Uh, For the U.S. side, there's the unpredictable tariffs. There is the possibility that a American company or or let's, you know, let's say a a mutual fund, for example, is investing in in a promising Chinese fund. But then the national security community uncovers that this Chinese fund has actually invested in a Chinese company that makes nuclear submarines, which are then viewed to be potentially threatening to the United States. And so they have to pull out their investment. Uh, on the Chinese side, there are a lot of 
boycotts, not a lot, but significant number of boycotts of American or Western products when they're seen as offending the feelings of the Chinese people. There are surprise uh, inspections of factories and stores when a company or the company's home government runs afoul of Chinese government laws or norms. And there is this sense that some of what they're doing is not welcome there. And, you know, as you can see, I'm, I'm kind of coming back to the politics here over the economics, because economically, China remains one of the best stories in the world, despite slowdown, despite the trade war, uh, you know, despite difficulty in getting a sense of, of what the real numbers are. I think especially for a company that's not just looking for, okay, we need to grow at X percent a year, but long-term investment, uh, Chinese fundamentals, et cetera. The issue is the way that the politics, both the international politics and the domestic politics, curdles those outlooks. Do you believe that foreign companies will ever play on an even playing field in China? I mean, you talk about the uh, the fundamentals and the, the you know, positive components. Um, and, and I guess, relatedly, should people who do business with Chinese companies assume to some extent that they're doing business with the Chinese government? I think it really depends on the size of the Chinese company and the specifics. Certainly anything in any remotely sensitive field, uh, you have to expect a lot of party oversight or at least a lot of awareness of where the Communist Party sits on these issues. I think in terms of a level playing field, some of the companies that are most successful in China are food and beverage companies where politics is, is a lot less important. Companies mm. like Starbucks, companies like Yum Brands. Yep. And I, that's true on a, a smaller level too. A lot of the, a lot of the expat community in Beijing now, a lot of the most successful business owners are those who own restaurants or own shops that deliver pizzas or, you know, high-end juice bars, things like that. Education is another safe area because Americans can better act as the gatekeepers to getting Chinese into schools like Harvard and Yale, which is, you know, maybe also the longstanding dream of the Chinese nation to have their kids go to Harvard and Yale. Yes. I, I think in terms of a fair playing field, the more localized that American companies can come and the more Chinese executives they have, that tends to correlate with how well they do. But that can then also complicate how they play in other markets. So I, I think there is still a huge demand for savvy, bicultural, bilingual Chinese or American executives who can climb up the chain there. I don't, you know, that this as a sort of pundit, the, okay, what's going to happen next piece of this is, is always the most fraught and difficult. I don't know where we'll be in a couple of months uh, with American businesses in China, but I mean, <laughs> it's a, we are looking at a little bit dicey times. Yeah, no doubt. And, and you know, it's, it's the ability to flawlessly predict the future without any uh, error at any time. That, that That's what we all depend on people like you for. You, you understand. Exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. 100% ratings. Uh, 100% every single time. Um, you know, thinking about the region then and thinking about it from a, both from a maybe foreign investment, foreign um, engagement versus 
China's role. Um, on the one hand, uh, obviously, the U.S. pulled out of uh, the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP. Um, and at the, at the same time, of course, that China continues to advance uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, how, how do you view, first of all, the Belt and Road Initiative um, and kind of is that an economic versus security approach? Let me uh, is that an economic versus security approach? Um, and how do you view the China role in the region uh, versus uh, the ability for foreign uh, governments to get in there? I think BRI is really a catch-all for China's global trade strategy. And I think the idea is to have China's return, one could say, to, to the center of the global trading system as, as something that sounds really mild and, and doesn't allow for a great fear of some sort of grand conquering strategy. I think at the same time, a really important aspect of BRI is what Beijing does with local governments and local journalists and local opinion leaders to try to tamp down criticism of Beijing and criticism of Chinese global strategy. I just remembered being in Beijing, gosh, maybe a decade ago and having a uh, going to a press conference with the Rwandan ambassador who said that if China colonizes Africa, uh, it's Africa's fault. Hmm. And you, you can just not <laughs> imagine him saying something like that about what Europe or the U.S. is doing or has done. And I think that Beijing does a really good job of enforcing norms about how people are allowed to talk about certain issues that Beijing deems as sensitive. And it really does make it harder for local governments and local communities to say, hey, we don't like this BRI plan or that BRI plan, and we want to talk about it in different terms. And Isaac, to close out the conversation, um, you've you've effectively taken away my go-to close question, which is <laughs> what, what's next. Um, and you've you've made clear that you know it's very hard to tell even what's going to happen uh, in the next few weeks by in in time for the seventieth anniversary. Um, so instead, um, I'm wondering about let's say we got a trade deal tomorrow, uh, U.S. China, you know. Trump, G, somehow they figure out the whole tariff thing and they're like, uh, you know, sorry about that, bygones, uh, let's, let's, do the, let's do the trade deal. Would we go back to the status quo ante or has the China-U.S. relationship forever changed? I don't know if there ever was a status quo on U.S.-China relationship. And, and mm -hmm. one of the fun things about this book that I'm researching now is to look at how people talked about the relationship in a lot of different periods between now and the 30s, and it's just constantly evolving. And I think the where we go next will certainly have elements of where we've been, but we are facing, for, for those who believe in American exceptionalism, and I don't know if I count myself as one of those, but for those who believe that America is the world's most powerful, important country, China is belying that and is going to continue to belie that. And I think where we are today is in strong need of a national debate about what we want as Americans and what we're willing to do. Do you see that debate occurring? Because, you know, as you say that and your use of the word debate obviously it makes me think of you know we're, we're kind of in the beginning of the 
middle of U.S. elections and presidential elections, it almost doesn't feel like there's a real debate, I've got to say. There's kind of a, a general acceptance that, yeah, somehow China has done really badly, you know, got certain breaks and rules on the WTO. They've acted really badly. And, you know, now we've got a tariff war and tariffs are bad. Um, but I, I'm not necessarily seeing in the in the popular culture a lot of discussion. But would you say that there's an active debate? You know, I, I don't think there is. I, I feel like the problem is that the Trump administration has so many racist policies and we have so little faith in their ability to deal with questions of Chinese influence without resorting to racist tropes or discriminatory behavior against Chinese American scientists or academics or students that those issues are submerging the more important issues, which is how do we deal with Beijing and the Communist Party? So I think in order to respectfully, responsibly have this debate. It would be lovely, though unlikely, but it would be lovely if the national security apparatuses and the Trump administration just treated Chinese Americans better. And the issue is not about them. I mean, the issue is what they want for this country, but it's not about any questions of divided loyalty or or spies. It, it, it's way beyond that. And I think we're, as a community, you know, the community that, that I'm in who's trying to have this debate uh, is way too much getting bogged down in those issues as opposed to the bigger issues of what to do about Beijing and the party. Isaac, thank you. Thank you for your time and, uh, and, and the analysis. Thank you, Chris. Thank you.